Good morning, Grace Church. We have a lot to consider today in Romans chapter 9. Why did the Jews reject Christ? Or, or why does anyone reject Christ for that matter? Why doesn't everyone who receives gospel privileges and promises get saved and come to faith in Christ? Is it God's fault? And does his word fail with some people? In Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 13, Paul is anticipating and, and answering the first of several real accusations, potential accusations against God. And so what we're going to do today is take a deep dive into the glorious riches of God's sovereign working. And so if you're able, please stand with me and take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 9. And I'm going to read verses 6 through 13. This is the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for your mercy, for your grace. I pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes today to see wonderful things in your word. All for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. God's glory is his highest concern and must be our chief aim. There are many important aspects of life in Christ, people coming to faith in Christ, people growing in Christ, but the biggest of all is the glory of God, the pinnacle, the peak uh, the primary focus to which everything must point. Every church that claims to be a biblical church should first and foremost seek the glory of God. And so as we are proclaiming the gospel, we're proclaiming the gospel of the grace of God in Christ, we must proclaim that God is glorious. And there may be no other chapter in the Bible that gives glory to God more fully and completely than Romans chapter 9. It credits him with determining the salvation of all who are saved because of his mercy, all for his glory. That everything is in his hands. He works all things by the counsel of his will. Everything that happens is because he wills it. And everything we do as believers, everything we do as a church, rests on the glory of God. Our worship, our evangelism, our discipleship, 
our acts of kindness and mercy and compassion have their foundation in the glory of God. The epicenter of my heart and my life and my ministry is deeply rooted in Romans chapter 9. I have pastored grace for 12 and a half years. It is the joy of my life. It is the privilege of my life. And what you might not know, because this is the first time we've gone through Romans, and so this past three weeks is the first time we've really been preaching verse by verse through Romans 9. What you might not know is that all my preaching and living among you these past years has been rooted in the truths of Romans 9. His sovereign grace, his electing love, his mercy in Christ, his glory. And we are dealing in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 with some, some deep, deep things of God. With glory, God's absolute almightiness. With sovereignty, his absolute kingship over all. With election, you saw that in here, God's purpose of election, God's sovereign determinism. And we're dealing also with evangelism. That Paul has this deep desire for his kinsmen to be saved. He starts Romans 9 like that. He starts Romans 10 the same way. God's glory is his highest aim. Sovereign election ensures salvation is secure. And it also ensures that evangelism produces maximum glory to God. I would put it this way. God's glory shines brightly in Romans 9. God's glory just shines so bright in Romans 9. In the first five verses, Paul is just pouring out his heart. He is sincere. He is sorrowful. He is, he is selfless about it. And, and the subject of his grief is his own kinsmen who are, who are rejecting Christ. And his soul, his soul is pierced. His soul is burdened because his people have pushed Jesus away despite their many privileges and the promises they've been given. This just proves it, how sinful our nature is, how sinful our depravity, how, how corrupt we are that given all of that, we still choose against God. You know people that have heard the gospel over and over and over again, and spiritually they're dead as a doornail. And Paul is burdened, but he is not in despair. He's not despairing. He, he knows God is sovereign. And no wonder then that what you, you see, when, when you look at those first five verses in this chapter, what you see when he comes to verse five is his heart just breaks out in praise to God. It's a prayer of praise to God. He's, he's praising Christ. He's acknowledging Christ as God. See, the solution for Paul is that Christ is God over all. Christ is God over all. And I think it's striking that this is what he does at the outset of chapters 9, 10, and 11, which developed the plan of God in salvation by his sovereign choice. He gives praise to God in Christ. It is a, so a spontaneous overflow, even in the midst of his deep grief over his people's unbelief. When you think of the glory of God, you should praise him. 
When you think of the glory of God, your heart should overflow in praise. Focus with me on Romans 9, verses 6 through 13. Verse 6 begins this way. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. So he has just rehearsed all these magnificent privileges and promises that the Israelites have received. And of course, they've rejected Christ. This is why he is so burdened and his, his heart is gutted over it. He says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. And this idea, by the way, is going to drive his argument for quite some time. This is going to carry the argument for quite some time. Paul is, is anticipating this objection, even an accusation against God that people will make. And it would go like this. Well, if the Jews don't believe, it must be because there's something broken about God and his word. And so his opening phrase settles it. It is not as though. That literally means it's impossible. By no means. So Israel has rejected the gospel. They didn't grasp who the privileges pointed to. It doesn't mean that God who gave the privileges couldn't follow through on his promises. Or that the Messiah wasn't strong enough to save. Because that's where that accusation is angling. Well, maybe the Messiah isn't strong enough to save after all. Sounds like blasphemy to us. He uses the term fail. He says, God's word hasn't failed. It hasn't fallen. It refers in the Bible, that word to breaking an axe or a flower just shriveling up or a shipwreck on rocks. It's where you have something that was formerly strong and beautiful and it, it is ruined. And he's saying, no, God's word stands. God's word stands. You need a word of comfort on this. Let me give you a word of comfort. This is what he's, getting, what he's pointing to here. The value of the word of God. Especially the value of the Old Testament. He is quoting the Old Testament over and over again in chapters 9, 10, and 11. He's led by the Holy Spirit. And he is writing out the wisdom of God. And he's quoting from the Old Testament. It's like Romans 15, where Paul says that, that by, by the comfort and consolation of the scriptures, you would have hope. Hope. Because God's word never fails. All sorts of things in life fail. They, they break, they fall down, they, they don't deliver on the promise. But God's word stands forever. It, it doesn't fail. That's what Isaiah said. Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass withers, the flower falls off, but the word of our God stands forever. Forever. Jesus said it. John 17, 17, your word is truth. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. The Bible is God's divine self-disclosure. You want God? Open up a Bible. It's the primary way he reveals himself to us. You want God? The only way is through God's instrument of self-disclosure. The means by which salvation and discipleship is cultivated. You must be faithful in feeding yourself what you need the word of god we must be faithful in in serving you what you need the actual word of god 
which 1 Thessalonians 2.13 says, does its work in us who believe. God uses the word of God in the lives of the people of God for the glory of God. God's word is never budged. It's never broken down. It's never fallen down. It will never fail. God knows exactly what he is doing and why. People fail. People fail you left and right. You and I fail. But God's word stands forever. It's bedrock. Stand on it. Believe it. Trust it. Bank your whole life on it. The word of God never fails. And it did not fail in the case of the Jews. It did not fail. Let's think about this for just a moment as we, as, we, as we look at this verse. And then before we move on in this passage, think about this. If someone is saying that God's word has failed, what are they saying about God? Anyone who questions the strength and effectiveness of God's word is questioning the strength and effectiveness of God himself. They, you know people like this. They think they know better than God. They could run the world or their life better than God. They don't need God. The, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They have no Godward compass. This is what we know. Everyone will be held accountable for their usurping of the glory of God. Everyone will be held accountable for their trying to undo Creation, even. God's realm. Think about what it's like in our society today. Just this past week, you can take any week of the year, but just take this past week and, and the instances of, of people undermining God's glory and trying to undo creation. Mankind trying to un, undo creation, overturn God's glory and usurp his glorious rule. Egregious things. International upheaval. Just take one example. Venezuela can't feed its people, though it has tons of oil. A dictator forcing his will. Some fighting desperately to bring order, but chaos right now. You repeat that in many nations. Mankind usurping God's rule and treating others shamefully. You go to the home front, further sliding into ungodliness and human atrocities. Think about the idea of marriage and family. Parents Magazine, a national magazine for parents, for the first time ever. Their, their, their February 2019 cover features two men married to each other, raising twin sons. Think about the sanctity of life. January 22nd, 2019 was a horrific day in New York. Governor Cuomo signed a bill allowing abortions up to birth. At nine months, you can kill your baby. To celebrate this new law, he orders the pink lighting of the top of the World Trade Center. You know, what, you know what's striking about that besides just the shock value? They're celebrating a New York abortion law 
at the same place where unborn babies are memorialized. I'm not sure if you know this, but the 9-11 memorial lists the mothers who died and their unborn children. Like Mrs. Smith and her unborn baby. Eleven unborn children lost their lives during those terror attacks. And so the memorial recognizes unborn children as human. Eleven babies killed as victims of terrorists. While legislators are celebrating the killing of unborn children whose lives go unacknowledged by abortionists. And the judgment of God must rightly fall on those of us who have allowed and supported such a travesty. We have to ask the question, whose side are we on? Whose side are we on? Are are we going to cling to the truth or cave to the culture? The world hates the gospel. And by the way, I think the church's track record on this is not stellar. The resulting lack of persecution is ample evidence for us. The, The world hates the gospel. The world hates the word of God. If you stand with the gospel and you stand with the word of God, be ready to be hated. But I think we'd rather be liked. Now make no mistake about it. These are not first political issues. They are first moral and ethical and biblical issues before they are anything else. God has spoken and mankind doesn't want to hear it. Mankind usurping God's glory and trying to undo creation. And God is not surprised by any of it. He knows why evil exists in the world, and he knows how he will use it for his glory. He knows everything. And he knows why Israel doesn't believe. He knows why. Paul's going to tell us right here. When Paul says the word of God has not failed, he answers the critic who would say, you know, God has given all these promises and covenants through the patriarchs and the prophets to Israel. We see his glory in the covenants, God making a relationship with people through Abraham and Moses and David, ultimately fulfilled in Christ. We see his glory in the promises, all the Old Testament prophecies and promises about the coming of the Messiah. And God gave all of those privileges to Israel, told Abraham even that he would bless his descendants. But he makes a radical distinction. You've got to notice it. Look at verse 6. It starts, it is not as though the word of God has failed. It's impossible for the word of God to fail. Look at the next phrase. There is an important and radical distinction being made. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. That's key. Pay attention to it. You must define Israel properly. Do you notice that in that same verse, Israel is used twice, and it's used in two different ways. Some who are racially descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are not true Israel. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Now, why didn't they get it? They got the promises. They had the covenants. 
They had all of that. Why didn't they get it? Was it because they were so sinful? Yes. It's a big part. But what's the ultimate answer? This is what Paul is giving us here. He's pulling back the curtain of God, God's sovereign workings, and he's saying the ultimate answer, and, and this is hard to miss, and it's hard to avoid. You've got to swerve in a big way to miss this one. And I realize it's not easy to accept. Here's the answer. God ordained that only some would be saved. Now to prove the point, he goes to two Old Testament examples. First he says, now look at the promises of God very carefully. God promised Abraham that his descendants would be blessed, but Abraham had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael, and it was through Isaac that your offspring would be counted, God said to him. Look at verse, look at verse 7. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac, quoting Genesis 21, 12, through Isaac your offspring will be named. So it's illustrating, biblical illustration, description of Abraham's family. Now this points back to chapter 8, verses 16 and 17, which tells us that God's children are those in whom the Spirit bears witness. And his people include Jew and Gentiles. We'll see later in, in this chapter in verse 24. Verse 8 tells us this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted, reckoned, it matters, as offspring. This is who's in and who's out, who belongs and who doesn't, who's saved and who's lost. You've got the child of the flesh. Now, he isn't named, but this is Ishmael. You've got the child of promise, that's Isaac, and only one of Abraham's sons, Abraham's sons was accepted by God. We know this. Ishmael was not Abraham's spiritual descendant. Only Isaac was. Verse 9, it says, this is the promise. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. This is what it said. This is quoting Genesis 18.10. Sarah, your wife, will have a son. God set the day of his birth. Just like he set the day of your birth and my birth. And, and you don't just have here a, a barren woman having a miraculous child, but the barren one bearing a son of covenant promise. Why has God's word not failed? Because every physical descendant isn't saved. Not all descended from Israel are Israel. Spiritual Israel is different from national Israel. When Paul called them the Israelites, he is, he is acknowledging some are made up of children of the flesh, some are made up of children of the promise, only God knows. And he's saying that physical descent is no qualifier. Spiritual birth brought about by God is. That's how you are counted. That's how you are reckoned. So God's word has not failed. Even though they had plenty of privileges pointing to Christ, they rejected God and his word. Not everyone is chosen. Now we're getting to the heart of the matter here. We're getting to the heart of the matter. This is what pushes against man's pride the most. This is what it's hardest for us to take. God's word has not failed, this passage is telling us, because not everyone is chosen. It's plain and simple. And, and, it, and you see the word there in verse 11, God's purpose of election. It stands. It was set in motion before anyone did anything. So you can ask the question, 
Who are the children? Who are the children of promise? The answer is all, all whom God has chosen and called. So Paul mentions twin boys here, children of Abraham. Look at verse 10. And he starts it by saying, and not only so. What he is doing is saying, even more convincing is this point I'm about to make. He says, also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man. So remember that Ishmael and Isaac were, were half-brothers. So you could say, well, you know, it's because one wasn't his, his, his true child of promise, and God had promised him that child. So now let's just take Rebekah as an example, Paul is saying. This is going even deeper into the inner workings of God. Verse 11, put your eyes on that verse. It says, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. So God doesn't choose by chance. He doesn't say eeny, meeny, miny, mo." Before they were born. See, God does not choose by merit either. Before they did anything good or bad. This is hedging us in completely in the arena of God's sovereign choice. The twins didn't both get in due to physical relation. It's a matter of God's choice. You got Esau and Jacob. They weren't half-brothers like Ishmael and Isaac. They were conceived at the same time. They were in the same womb. They were chosen or not chosen with no regard to their moral quality. Both were sinful. Both were fallen. God chooses by his own will. Look again at verse 11. In order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. So God made a distinction between them before they were born and before any actions by which they could have been evaluated for worthiness or fitness to be blessed. God's purpose of election. It takes us right back to Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. Look at those verses. They're probably on the same page of your Bible. Verse 28 says that God works all things together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. You've got called and purpose, just like in Romans 9. And then verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. The key is that phrase, because of him who calls. Because of him who calls. That is an effective calling. It's not the general call of the gospel. Everyone must have the call of the gospel. You need to get to the ends of the earth, giving out the gospel, because we don't know the things God knows. Only God knows those whom he has chosen. Because of him who calls, the effective calling, not the general call of the gospel, the effective inward call of God that draws you to himself. This was of God's own doing, according to his sovereign purpose, according to his sovereign will. It's like that verse, many are called, but few are chosen. Many are called by the outward call of the gospel. Few are chosen. Few are drawn to God by his inward effectual calling and irresistible grace. It's God's choice, not ours. 
It's, it's like what Jesus said in John 15, 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. Chosen by God, appointed by God. This is his purpose. When you see the purpose there, God's purpose of, of election, verse 11, and you go back to Romans 8, 28, and you see purpose, what that means is it's a goal that God carefully thought through and wants to achieve and will achieve. And it's not because of ethnic affiliation. It's not because of moral value or moral virtue. Membership in God's people originates with the one who calls because of the one who calls. Moving on to verse 12, it's still explaining the same thing. She was told the older will serve the younger. Now God is disturbing the natural progression of things and declaring that the older will serve the younger. Quoting from Genesis 25, 23, God says to her, two nations are in your womb, two people shall come from you, and one people shall be stronger than the other, and the elder shall serve the younger. And then, in verse 13, he quotes Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 regarding Esau and Jacob. In a representative national sense, look at verse 13, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, as soon as you see those words loved and hated, you're thinking emotion, aren't you? It's not emotion. This is about action that God took. Now, Malachi 1, 2, and 3, those verses were written 1,500 years after Jacob and Esau died. It's looking back on their respective nations. One chosen for blessing, one for judgment. Malachi 1 God says, I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you say, how have you loved us? So Israel's saying, you didn't really love us. And then he reminds them of his love. God is so good to us to remind us of his love. He says, was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord, yet I loved Jacob and I hated Esau? So you got these verbs, love and hate, in Malachi these are not emotional terms. These are covenantal terms. They don't express emotions. They express God's actions. Another way to say it is, Jacob I have chosen, and Esau I have rejected. In Malachi, God is summing up Israel's you know, decimated situation. They were in, in bad times. They complain against God and say, you don't love us anymore, God. And he reminds them of his choice of them. You ever start thinking that God doesn't love you and you're a believer in Jesus? Look up every verse in the Bible about God's love for his own. He reminds them of his choice of them how he had carried out his freely decided purpose with regard to Esau and Jacob. He looks over the entire history of these nations. We know Esau and his people become enemies of God and of the people of God. But here's what else we know. And we know it very clearly from the text. In sovereign election, God does not wait until people or nations are grown up and choose based on how good they are, or how bad they are, or what they did, 
or what they didn't do. Election is based on God's purposes, not man's goodness or badness. There is no worthiness in us that determines God's choice. It is solely by grace unmerited, which generates in our hearts a a deep love and gratitude for God. It never generates pride. This is why Paul said, the one who boasts, boast in the Lord, because he saved you. This is telling us God is God and he does as he pleases. He decides, he determines, he is God. The hearts of all are in his hands. Nothing happens apart from him and his will. And God's word has not failed because everyone isn't chosen. His purpose of election stands. Now it was set in motion before we were born or did anything good or bad. The children of promise, who are they? They are the ones whom God has chosen and called. So what we're hearing And seeing here is that the unbelief of Israel did not nullify God's promises. It did not negate the word of God. What God has promised, he will surely bring to pass. He is going to save a people for himself. You will see this as we go on in chapter 10 and especially in 11, that there will come a time in the future of of a lot of Jews coming to faith in Christ. What we are seeing here is that God's covenant promises have not failed. They have not failed. And and Paul is giving the complete and unvarnished truth. He's giving the answer to the question. The promises of God in the Old Testament were not given automatically to anyone who was physically descended from the patriarchs. Faith was necessary to inherit the promises. Faith that inherits the promises is ultimately because of God's choice. God has not chosen all of Israel, so not all are saved. You know this. God doesn't choose everyone. Salvation is not universal. Now, the universal call of the gospel goes out to all. I keep gospel tracks in my Bible, in my car, near the front door of our house. You can ask my family, because I want to get the gospel out to as many people as I can. The universal gospel call is to go out to all, but you know that those blinded by Satan can't respond unless God regenerates them. I've been having a good time recently uh, joking about technology that puts you in control. You see ads about this, that technology that puts you in control takes the steering wheel out of your hands. I just think that's funny. I think the the whole idea of of us being in control is a mirage, it's a facade, it's a fable, it's a falsehood. It's a figment of our imagination, it really is. We have no more control than a baby being born. We have no more control than a person under anesthesia getting operated upon. We think we're autonomous. We like to think we're independent. We're like astronauts orbiting the earth. We're in the hands of God. Our lives are always in the hands of God. Nothing we can do determines our eternal destiny. Now, you're going to decide where to go to lunch today. You're going to decide what kind of gas to put in your car or where to plug in your electric car. But nothing we can do can determine our eternal destiny. We are in the hands of God. Truly, 
We have no rudder. We are not in control. We have no ultimate determining capabilities. God calls people into existence of his own free will. By the way, you want to talk about free will? God is the only one with totally free will. Ours is at worst enslaved to sin and at best tainted by sin. God's sovereign purpose in election guarantees the eternal life of all the elect and the success of world missions. The elect will come to Christ. God's glory will be revealed. Think back, if you can think back in your life to before you were a believer. Let's say you became a believer, you know, not as a really young child, but maybe a little bit older like me. I was 19 years old. And let's just say that you can remember back when you didn't love Jesus. See, an unredeemed sinner loves their sin so much more than Jesus that they run to sin and flee from Christ. They pick pleasure. They push away the Savior. We are, we are depraved. We are guilty. And without God's intervention, we are all going to be, we would all be in an eternity of continual burning and weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. So let me give you a word of caution. Don't think that salvation is based on something you do. You know, something that God sees and then rewards you for. I don't know about you, but aren't you glad that God doesn't grade on a curve? Can you imagine the competition? Can you just imagine? Or how about annual reviews? You know, how did you do? Uh, how did you perform? Will you get a raise? Do people like you and what you bring to the table? Are you doing a good job? And by the way, it's not your evaluation of yourself that counts. It's your supervisor's evaluation of you. Their opinion of your job performance counts. They get the final say in it. But what if you were being evaluated by God Almighty? Everyone would immediately be sent to hell. No one is getting saved if it is based on our performance. It's only based on the finished work of Christ. If the evaluation was done after we were born, and after we had done good or bad, the verdict would be the same on all of us. You know, guilty as charged, guilty of cosmic treason against a holy God. But aren't you glad that this is not the way God works? Everyone deserves eternal separation from God in hell. But he is merciful. And, and for his own glory, according to his purpose of election, he chooses some before they were born, before they do anything good or bad, no foreseen merit or action or response on their part. This is all by grace. We love to say our salvation is all by grace. So don't change the story. Keep it that way. Ephesians 2, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. 
Romans 9 tells us that God determines the destiny of all. He is a loving God. He is an electing God, choosing of his own free will and pleasure, independent of anything he sees or foresees in us. And that causes a lot of people to question God. For whatever reason, they they think that they are the determiners of their fate. That God has somehow delegated to them the ultimate decision. But nothing can be further from the truth in God's economy. You are accountable to God for your sin if you reject Christ. But you are not the determiner of your destiny. And you have to keep that distinction clear. God does. We all have sincere opinions. We all have sincere questions. Proves we're using our God-given minds. It's a good thing. Questions are good. Scripture-bound answers are better. They are a gift of God's grace. But we know this. Even with solid biblical answers, we have a hard time wrapping our finite minds around the infinite, perfect, holy wisdom and works of God. We know that our redeemed, progressively sanctified Believing minds have a hard time comprehending. But here's the truth. We cannot, apart from God giving understanding and illumination, understand. Our minds lead us astray. This is why we must rely upon the bare word of God. The bare word of God. Let me tell you why we insist on the doctrine of election. Because it's in the Bible. We insist upon it because it's in the Bible. And every alternative explanation that you can make up causes more problems. You're like, but what about this? What about that? Try your own version and see how many problems that creates. Without election, you deny the central truth that we are saved by grace through faith alone and not by works. God predestines individuals to their respective eternal destinies. Let God be God. He is not arbitrary. He chooses people for their own, for his own reasons. The reasons are not in us. We have no superiority. Can you imagine if the reasons were in us? Like, hey, the difference between unbelievers and us is that, well, we're more humble. Or we're more sensitive to God. Or we just desire God more. That would make us the author of our salvation. It's not the case. This is the doctrine of election clearly explained. Those who freely come to God were freely chosen by God. We're talking here about God's works. We're talking about God's ways. We're talking about God's determination of outcomes. We're talking about God's sovereign freedom. We're talking about the Godhood of God here. And we don't understand it all. Because we're not God. But we believe it. And we trust the bare word of God by God. And what kind of response does God want from us? Our worship, our adoration, our reverence, our trust, our dependence, our repentance. Who who are the children who do that? Those he has chosen. 
ever since I've gotten saved, ever since I was a, a young believer in 1982, I have just been awestruck at the grace of God in saving me. And I don't think there's a day go by that I don't think, wow, God chose me. Unworthy and sinful as I am. And he didn't choose me based on any performance review. And so we must, we must bow in humble adoration. We must bow in humble reverence at his magnificent glory. And just simply, just simply proclaim all glory be to Christ. Amen? Lord, we, we want to proclaim that. With all of our questions, Lord, thank you that you have the word of God that never falls, never fails, never leads us astray. So Lord, we want to proclaim all glory be to Christ in our hearts, in our homes, in your household, and as we live in this world, as we, as we love people with the love of Christ and tell them the gospel truth, the only truth that can save their souls and bring them into the glorious victory that Christ won at the cross. All for your glory. And we pray in Christ's name, amen.